0: Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis
1: and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart
0: of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you.
1: Welcome to Heritage Events Live, behind the Great Wall of Secrecy, China's nuclear buildup. We're thrilled to have you here. Here are some tips for making the most of your virtual experience with us. Please submit questions through the questions tab. Feel free to share your name and affiliation. We'd love to know who's joining us. If there are any minor technical issues, we ask for your patience, as many of us are working from home and using home internet. I now invite Peter Brooks, Heritage's Senior Research Fellow for Weapons of Mass Destruction and Counterproliferation to come on screen. We hope you enjoy you. the program. Thank you, Catherine. Uh, Good afternoon and welcome to the Heritage Foundation. I'm Peter Brooks. Uh, Joining us for today's program titled Behind the Great Wall of Secrecy, China's Nuclear Buildup is the Special Presidential Envoy for Arms Control, Ambassador Marshall Billingsley. There are certainly a great number of issues that are being looked at today in the area of arms control, including Russia's use of the nerve agent Novichok, chemical weapons use in Syria, North Korean nukes and missiles, the ending of the Intermediate-Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, and of course, New START, which our speaker has been engaging the Russians about actively. But an issue that has gotten less attention, and, I, and should get more, in my opinion, are developments regarding China's nuclear forces, especially in an era of great power competition. The recent Pentagon report on the Chinese military of power asserts that the People's Republic of China is pursuing a nuclear triad with land, sea, and air-based nuclear forces. According to the report, and I'm quoting here, China's nuclear forces will significantly evolve over the next decade as it modernizes, diversifies, and increases the number of its land, sea, and air-based nuclear delivery platforms. Indeed, the report goes on to say, quoting here again, over the next decade, China's nuclear warhead stockpile, currently estimated to be in the low 200s, is projected to at least double in size as China expands and modernizes its nuclear forces. The report also goes into other issues, as you probably know, since you've probably looked at it as well, including China's no first use policy. This newly released high profile assessment, while not the only view out there on China's strategic forces, raises questions about Beijing's intentions, its nuclear capabilities and doctrine, questions of transparency, and China's willingness or unwillingness to engage in arms control discussions. In light of this, the other burning question is, how should the United States and others respond to these developments? Fortunately, joining us today to discuss this and more is Ambassador Billingsley, who has been thinking about and working on this issue at the State Department. But before I give him the floor, let me say a few things about his impressive background. President Trump appointed Marshall Billingsley as Special Presidential Envoy for Arms Control on April 10, 2020, and awarded him the personal rank of ambassador. In this role, Ambassador Billingsley will lead arms control negotiations on behalf of the U.S. government. Ambassador Billingsley most recently served in government as Assistant Secretary for Terrorist Financing at the Department of Treasury. In that role, he built international coalitions that led U.S. forces to counter illicit financial activities. He has deep expertise in arms control and broad experience in foreign policy and national security, having previously served in the Pentagon in three different capacities. He served as Deputy Undersecretary of the Navy. He served as Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Special Operations and in Low-Intensity Conflict and as the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Negotiations Policy. Ambassador Billingsley also worked at NATO, as NATO's assistant, as assistant Secretary General for Defense Investment and a Senior Professional Staff Member with the Senate's Foreign Relations Committee, which I think is where we first met many, many years ago. Ambassador Billingsley holds a Bachelor of Arts from Dartmouth College and a Master of Arts in Law and Diplomacy from Tufts University. He's been decorated with the Cross of Terra Mariana by the President of Estonia, the Knight's Cross by the President of Poland, and the Cross of the Order of Merit of the Czech Republic. The Ambassador has also been awarded the Defense Medal for Distinguished Public Service by the U.S. Secretary of Defense and decorated by the U.S. Secretary of Navy with the Distinguished Public Service Medal. Ambassador Billingsley, please join us on screen. The floor is yours. Uh,
0: thanks, Peter, for that kind introduction. And thank you to the Heritage Foundation for hosting this event. Uh, and thanks for everyone uh, for, for joining in and watching from home. I, I wish we could be together uh, uh, in person. The coronavirus really has disrupted our lives in so many ways. Uh, I know everyone's got a personal story. I'm sure in my case, my eldest daughter didn't expect to be uh, uh spending her first semester in college quarantining in her dorm room and i didn't expect to be paying full tuition for that opportunity as well but you know of course these these inconveniences seem so insignificant when we consider the loss of lives as a result of this pandemic we didn't know what this virus was peter or we didn't know where it came from we didn't know how deadly it was or contagious it was or what the symptoms were because this confusion was compounded by the chinese communist party and by their unconscionable actions that they took to cover everything up. Ultimately, it seems for ridiculous and unconscionable reasons of prestige and self-image that the Chinese allowed this virus to spread, such is the nature of totalitarian regimes. As the world sought to learn about this virus, and there's a point that I'm making here, uh, we ran headfirst into a great wall of secrecy. Except for bogus claims that everything was under control, nothing else of truth escaped, and more than one million men, women, and children are now dead as a result. When it comes to nuclear weapons, the Chinese government is hiding behind the same great wall of secrecy. They steadfastly refuse to say how many nuclear weapons they have, how many they plan to build, uh, or how they plan to use them. Uh, For decades now, attempts to engage the Chinese Communist Party in a substantive dialogue regarding their nuclear arsenal have proven futile. Now, we, on the other hand, are incredibly transparent. Uh, Many of you have seen the Nuclear Posture Review uh, that uh, is about 100 pages long and includes information on our nuclear strategy, our capabilities, our relationships uh, with other nuclear powers and our allies, uh, and more. Uh, China, on the other hand, produces five paragraphs, five paragraphs that are written to deceive, And unfortunately, this kind of deception campaign is nothing new. There's an old Chinese adage, hide a dagger and a smile. Uh, It's still being taught and practiced today. We have recently declassified several pieces of intelligence on China's secretive crash nuclear buildup, uh, including our analysis uh, of images from China's 2019 military parade, uh, which was held in celebration of the 70th anniversary of the Communist Party's founding. And, uh, you know, much of that parade was standard propaganda, stuff we've come to expect. Uh, They unveil new military technologies while they send their soldiers out goose-stepping in their crisp uniforms. But one thing in particular demands attention. It was their display of ballistic and cruise missiles that stretched over two and a half miles long in that parade, nearly 10 times longer than what it was a decade ago. One can only imagine the length of the parade coming in the next 10 years. Among the missiles they chose to highlight was the Dongfeng 41 missile or the DF-41. The DF-41 boasts uh, the longest range in the current arsenal of the PLA. It's built to destroy targets up to 9,000 miles away. It's estimated that it can reach the United States, uh, the continental United States uh, in 30 minutes and Alaska and Hawaii obviously in a shorter period of time. This missile is an integral part of their arsenal uh, and they want more of them, lots more. In May of 2020, I highlight the fact that the editor-in-chief of the Global Times, which is a state-controlled Communist Party mouthpiece, editorialized calling for a rapid expansion in the PLA arsenal. He argued that the arsenal should contain at least 1,000 warheads. And more specifically, he says they should have at least 100 of the DF-41 missiles capable of reaching the United States. And what does the editor-in-chief think of people who disagree? Well, quote, they're as naive as children, unquote. There's absolutely no way and Peter, I know you know this as a, as a scholar of the Chinese, there's absolutely no way the editor-in-chief of the Global Times would have made such comments without the explicit approval of senior Communist Party officials. The mention of using these missiles that they brandish, uh, their actions tell a very different story. In 2019, China launched at least 225 ballistic missiles, more than the rest of the world combined. Uh, the same was true, by the way, in 2018. Even now, uh, while most nations are desperately redirecting their whole-of-government efforts to focus on fighting the virus that China tried to hide and then allowed to spread, uh, the Chinese continue their missile testing program aggressively. As of this August, the Chinese had shot off at least 70 such ballistic missiles this year. And speaking of testing, uh, Chinese has dug out a small mountain at their Nur nuclear test site. You can see uh, the spoil piles from space. Uh, literally a small mountain has been dug out of those test shafts. The level of activity there suggests they're operating nearly year-round. And this raises serious questions and grave concerns, particularly regarding China's claim to the rest of the world that they're not engaged in testing with nuclear yield. Unfortunately, those answers to the and the, the truth there again are barricaded behind the great wall of secrecy. Everything I've just detailed, and I could go on portends a major shift in China's nuclear posture. In 2015, they claimed that they really only wanted to maintain a, quote, lean and effective, unquote, nuclear force. Just four years later, you'll notice that the Chinese Communist Party has retired that phrase, and presumably the intentions went with it. As for their so-called no first use policy, as our strategic commander has said, uh, it's so shot full of holes you could drive a bus through it. And the systems they're developing make clear that the policy is far more propaganda than substance and while they publicly won't admit it yet they're actively pursuing a nuclear triad which is to say the ability to launch nuclear weapons at us and our allies and our friends uh, from both air land and sea. Chairman Xi makes clear that he wants China to be a first-tier military on par with Russia and the United States uh, the rapidity of the composition of that buildup, coupled with their economic predations, suggests that he probably has even grander ambitions. This cannot continue. With every missile launched, with every truckload of rock excavated from Nur, with every new building constructed at their warhead production complexes, with each sinister insinuation in state media and every unanswered call, the Communist Party of China is bringing the world closer to an unprecedented three-way nuclear arms race. This is unacceptable. And the Trump administration is making every effort to prevent this. In April, as Peter indicated, the president appointed me as his envoy for arms control. His instructions were very clear. Defend our nation's people. Defend our interests and our allies while achieving the most complete, verifiable, and effective arms control agreement possible, putting an end ultimately to both the Russian and Chinese buildups. Discharging this responsibility requires beginning with an acknowledgement that the binary Cold War era arms control approaches no longer apply. They no longer work. They no longer make sense. It's outdated. As I've said, China is repeatedly and aggressively expanding the size and scope of their nuclear arsenal. They are arms racing. Uh, We're not. But any treaty or agreement that doesn't account for this is by definition incomplete, ineffective, and does fail to ultimately safeguard the American people. For example, the so-called New Start Treaty uh, amazingly constrains more than 90% of the US nuclear deterrent, less than half of Russia's, on the other hand, and none of China's. For months now, we've been calling on the Chinese Communist Party to come to the table and negotiate in good faith. This is not an ask. This is an obligation of theirs. They are legally bound to honor it. Article six of the treaty on, non-proliferation, on the non-proliferation of nuclear weapons, more commonly known as the NPT, obliges all of the nuclear weapon states to pursue negotiations in good faith at an early date in order to prevent a nuclear arms race. China stands perilously close to violating its NPT obligations in this respect. China claims to be a great power, but they clearly seem incapable of acting like one. My team and I recently returned from Asia, and I would welcome any questions you might have about that uh, trip to see uh, close allies and new friends. Uh, and uh, and uh, our purpose of being in the region was to discuss, notwithstanding the coronavirus, how we can work together to ensure regional stability in the face of uh, increasing Chinese aggression and warmongering. Before making the trip, we told the Chinese government that we would be in the region. We offered them the opportunity to honor their obligations under the NPT and meet in person at a time and a location of their choosing. But they did as they always do. They hid behind this wall of secrecy, this time using, ironically, the coronavirus as an excuse not to meet. How is that for irony? As if you needed proof that their concern with COVID is insincere, the Chinese foreign minister seems to have no problems traveling, uh, recently returning from a diplomatic tour in Europe, uh, doing damage control for the regime. Uh, A recent Pew research poll shows that unfavorable Opinions of China have skyrocketed over the past year for obvious reasons. In fact, every in every country surveyed, uh, the majority of people had an unfavorable view of communist China. The regime that brought us the coronavirus is now bringing us to the edge of armed conflict over Taiwan, the South China Sea, its border with India, its incursions over the weekend into Japanese territorial waters, and ultimately a nuclear arms race. We are at a crossroads. No longer can nations avert their eyes and pretend not to see the dagger the Communist Party has begun to unsheath, despite their smiles. Silent support is not sufficient. The time has come for all nations to speak up and call on the Chinese to act responsibly and honor their obligations for a start. Now is the time for countries that historically have taken strong positions on nuclear weapons and nuclear weapons issues to demonstrate their sincerity on the topic. Many nations have already done so. Calling on Russia, for instance, to take the deal we've offered them would be a good start. Likewise, they need to urge China to sit down at the table and negotiate. The credibility of countries that profess to be at the leading edge of nuclear arms control is very much on the line. And uh, we are taking note of those who have chosen to remain silent to date. These nations should speak now while we're at a historic juncture where their words and actions can actually influence for a a positive way, the outcome or these nations should be prepared to hold their peace in the future. And finally, the aggression of the Communist Party and the secrecy uh, does have consequences. And because China almost inevitably is going to shirk their international obligations and refuse to cease their destabilizing activities, we must respond. In this administration, we cannot allow uh, a disruption of the status quo and an unbalancing of the international order that will fundamentally harm our national security interests and those of our friends and our allies, we will have to respond. A little over a year ago, we had no choice but to withdraw from the INF Treaty. As President Trump explained, and I quote, we cannot be the only country in the world unilaterally bound by this treaty or any other. While we adhered to the INF Treaty for more than three decades, the Russian Federation was cheating for at least a third of the time, if not longer and ultimately built and deployed and secretly built and then deployed a wide range of treaty violating missiles. China was left totally unconstrained for the past three decades, and they now have built and deployed thousands, literally more than a thousand, maybe as many as 2,000 of these medium range ballistic and cruise missiles uh, across 13 different kinds and types of missile systems. The reality is that these systems are a major part of our adversaries' arsenals now, and in response, we are going to develop and deploy our own ground launch cruise missile system, or GLCM as it's called, GLCM. Uh, just 14 months ago, we successfully tested one of these, and now the U.S. Marine Corps and the Army are pursuing their own versions of the system as we speak. Now, the Chinese can boast all they want, that they have these different kinds of mid-range missiles, and they can parade them all they will. They can doctor video footage uh, with stolen content from Hollywood all they want but this bravado masks a recognition of their part that they just don't have basing options because they don't have friends. Wanton aggression towards your neighbors has consequences. We don't need 13 kinds of missiles because we have 13 or more basing options. In addition to the Glicum, we're also developing cutting edge hypersonic weapons. I had the opportunity to visit Sandia National Laboratory in New Mexico a few weeks ago where I saw firsthand where the hypersonic program stands and the successful test of the glide body earlier this year. It's impressive and it's fast. And I can tell you American innovation is alive and well. This innovation drive is on full display when it comes to our nuclear modernization, and there is bipartisan agreement on the importance of this modernization effort. The question is not if or when we modernize our arsenal, but rather to what extent, given what Russia and China are now doing. Our most new, recent nuclear posture review, for instance, identified uh, several new capabilities that we would need going forward. Uh, that includes, uh, for instance, the W76-2 low-yield warhead, which is in direct response to our adversaries' belief that the, so-called, the use of so-called tactical or non-strategic nuclear weapons could somehow give them an advantage over the United States or our allies in a conflict. That is not the case. Moreover, uh, we are also redeveloping now our nuclear sea launch cruise missile capability. Finally, we're perfecting uh, an already robust missile defense uh, set of systems with a keen eye on emerging technologies. For example, an important element of our successful hypersonic test earlier this year was the concurrent work of the Missile Defense Agency to analyze that test data in order to inform ongoing development of systems that will ultimately defeat both Russian and Chinese hypersonic weapons. I'm pleased to say that our missile defense systems are now more comprehensible and capable than ever. They were created to protect the United States and our deployed forces and our allies, and they do just that. Uh, We're going to continue to refine and improve our systems, and we're going to deploy them throughout Asia and Europe uh, in coordination with our friends and our allies. And if the Chinese Communist Party doesn't like that, well, you reap what you sow. Uh, To be clear, these are not actions we've simply decided to take. uh, Confronted with China's mounting aggression, these are actions we are required to take. In closing, Peter, I'll just say uh, uh, it's especially meaningful that this event is hosted by the Heritage Foundation. You and your colleagues understand well uh, what we're grappling with here and the importance of maintaining our democratic principles and our national security, they go hand in glove. Uh, Regimes like China, of course, miss this point completely, Uh, but it's why we will ultimately prevail. Uh, My hope is that uh, uh, in the future, we are able to sit down and negotiate uh, a way out of the mess that China is creating with its arms buildup. We'll start with the Russians, but we will very quickly pivot Uh, towards China and towards constraining this destabilizing buildup. Peter, I'm going to pause there and uh, hand it back to you for any questions you may have. Thank
1: Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Ambassador. That was a a great overview. Um, If you don't mind, I'd like to exercise the moderator's prerogative and ask a few questions before we turn to the online audience. Please. I know that you came here to talk about China. Uh, And you've done a fabulous job of of doing that in a very short period. But I know that there are a lot of people in the audience who are probably uh, arms control uh, aficionados that want to hear about New Start. If you're willing to say a few words about that, I do want to get back to China, but I'd like to give you an opportunity to talk about your recent discussions in Helsinki and anything that has transpired since uh, your your trip uh, your trip to Helsinki. Or if you want to get into uh, well, I guess we can talk about Asia later, but I, I think people would like to hear about New Start. In fact, I have a couple of questions already. Hear about New Start, and then we'll try to move back into uh, into uh, the China side of things. So over to you. Well,
0: thanks for that. Um, so I think the the key point here on New Start is that uh, this was a treaty negotiated a decade ago uh, in a very different time, uh, looking at a very different world. We were not dealing at the time with a Russia that had invaded. Crimea uh, and occupied it uh, that had destabilized Ukraine um, we also weren't dealing with a China that was engaged in this in this crash nuclear buildup uh, the new start treaty is if it if it were ever adequate to addressing our national security considerations that that time really has long passed uh, it's a bilateral construct and as I've indicated uh, there's clear recognition including with the Russians that the next treaty is going to have to be multilateral and in our view, that multilateral means China. Uh, we, we cannot agree to an upending of the strategic balance and strategic stability that uh, has existed heretofore. To that end, what we've indicated to the Russians is that we are, in fact, willing to extend the New START treaty for some period of time, provided that they, in return, agree to a limitation, a freeze uh, on their nuclear arsenal. Uh, we're willing to do the same. Uh, We fail to see why it's in anyone's interest to have Russia continue to build up its inventory of these tactical nuclear weapons systems with which they like to threaten NATO. Uh, We cannot agree with that, and we cannot agree with a construct that leaves unaddressed 55% or more of the Russian arsenal. Uh, So we've proposed a compromise. Uh, Agree with us to a freeze, and we'll extend the New START Treaty for some period of time. Now, we're also going to have to see some meaningful verification uh, because if we know anything about the Russians, it's that they are serial treaty violators. Uh, so we have put forward a series of measures that would give some confidence in, uh, in their abiding by up for uh, and we're willing to adopt reciprocal measures on our end, but everything we agree with the Russians must be framed and must be formatted in a way that allows us to extend that arrangement to the Chinese, uh, when they finally are brought to the negotiating table. Mm. Uh, and So that's been the proposal we made. Uh, we believe that uh, there is an agreement in principle, uh, at the highest levels of our two governments. Uh, why I cut short, uh, my trip to Asia and, uh, and made a beeline for Helsinki, uh, when the Russians called and wanted to sit down and I'm hopeful that, uh, that sort of gentleman's agreement, that arrangement, that uh, we feel has been reached as I've said at the highest levels, uh, will ultimately need to percolate down through their system uh, so that my counterpart hopefully uh, will be authorized to uh, negotiate. Um, if we're ready to, to strike this deal. Uh, we could strike it tomorrow, in fact. Uh, but Moscow is going to have
1: to show the political will to do so as well. Okay, great. Thank you. And, we, and, and feel free to, uh, you know, intersperse, uh, talk about new stars. as we go back to China. But since the topic is China today, I'm going to I'll try to walk back, uh, walk back to that. And I, like I said, we do have some questions at the end on, on New START. So, so, Mr. Ambassador, what do you see as China's long-term uh, strategic intentions with their nuclear forces? You talked about specific capabilities. Uh, we've watched the, you know, the, the adding of the air-based uh, part of the nuclear triad and the sea base most recently. Where, what do you think their long-term strategic intentions are, if, if you can put a finger on it? Well, they're hostile. Uh,
0: Their long-term strategic intentions are to, uh, in essence, reestablish the Middle Kingdom uh, to ensure that all of the peripheral nations uh, serve as uh, tributaries, uh, and they intend to do so uh, through either the threat of force or the use of force. Uh, And we see clear evidence of that. I mean, they've got 60,000 soldiers now deployed on the Indian border. Uh, We've seen what they've done in the South China Sea, Uh, We see uh, the incursions into the Senkakus that I just mentioned, uh, which belong to Japan. Uh, We see uh, CNN's reporting that since 2016, uh, they've uh, more than 89 times they've incurred uh, into Malaysian waters. Uh, North Korea, I mean, the the Chinese Communist Party has a border dispute with nearly every country they border, including North Korea. Yes, that's right. So, you know, (laughs) it's, it's pretty clear. The handwriting's on the wall. This is a warmongering regime. And they intend, uh, through this nuclear buildup, to brandish nuclear weapons as a way of bullying and intimidating uh, all manner of freedom-loving countries.
1: Does it play any? Does the nuclear forces play any different role than the conventional forces in your mind?
0: Well, I I think they definitely do. I think they've shown an indication of that very uh, of that very fact when they threatened uh, our carrier groups with two of their INF class missiles, which are nuclear capable. Uh, So uh, you know they they clearly. And this is an area of great concern for us because their capabilities are certainly um, likely outpacing their strategic thinking uh, and their doctrine, uh, but they also uh, have none of the history of risk reduction in crisis that we uh, learned after the Cuban Missile Crisis we desperately needed to have with the Soviets. Uh, So through the process of arms control over many, many decades, uh, we built up such things as a hotline. Uh, a risk reduction center, uh, data declarations and exchanges to avoid mishap and miscalculation. China, on the other hand, has none of these things with us and few of these things with the Russians. Uh, This is a very tangible benefit that they would derive uh, as a result of sitting down with us and engaging in arms control discussions. It's something we've got on offer to them uh, and it's frankly something we're all going to, to need in the future, regrettably.
1: No, I I hope I'm not misquoting you here. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I pulled a quote that you said that the China's secretive crash nuclear buildup is the most imminent problem of this decade. Is that that I I hope I didn't take that out of context.
0: Uh, if if I didn't say that, then I'll I'll probably take ownership of it okay. because I, I very much feel that way.
1: So why do you yes, why do you say that? I mean, when you think about all the challenges that the United States faces, um uh, why do you see this as the most imminent problem when you're talking about their nuclear buildup as opposed to maybe China's rise or you know, some, other, some other national security challenge? Could you, could you explain that to us?
0: Well, it's, it's for the simple reason that this is a, uh, like I said, this is a warmongering communist party. And it's bad enough that they brandish around their conventional forces uh, to intimidate their neighbors and their allies. Uh, can you imagine what a nuclear armed bully uh, with a thousand or more warheads would would be like dealing with.
1: Yeah, you bring up that's a good that's a good point and I, I, it's a good segue to my next question. Could we be now obviously we're in a public space here and, and open sources and but could we be underestimating the expected growth in China's nuclear forces? Are there are there other futures you see? I mean the Pentagon report talks about 200 becoming 400 and some people uh, would reasonably argue well, you know, what's 400 compared to what the United States and Russia currently currently have? Uh, do you see a possible rush to near parity by the Chinese? Uh, do the Chinese have the necessary fissile material stocks to, you know, go beyond go beyond 400 in the next decade? I mean, that's over the next decade, at least the way the Pentagon. And having had some, had some experience with that report when I was at the Pentagon <laughs> administration, yep. Yep. you know, obviously it's massaged and, and put together for public consumption. Uh, but do, you, do you, are you are you worried about us that we're you know underestimating the expected growth? Are there other futures you see a possible rush to near parity or parity by the Chinese, and do they have the capability to to do that?
0: Well, that's a great question, Peter. Uh, and and you you know how that report is put together better than just about anybody. Um, I, I think it's important to recognize first of all that the uh, estimate that was provided on the size of the Chinese nuclear arsenal was operational warheads, not the total stockpile. Uh, So I need to make that very clear. One might imagine that the total stockpile might be something even even larger. Okay, that's an important point. Potentially. Uh, Now, as you also point out, what we we were able to say is that uh, in an unclassified way, that whatever that number winds up being, they're going to at least double, at least. At least, at least, okay. So, mm-hmm. so that's important because uh, um, there's a lot that we just are not going to be able to say publicly, but you can infer uh, what we what we're concerned about. I do very much point you to the Global Times article. I don't think mm-hmm. it's any accident that the editor- in chief chose to to write about having a thousand deployed warheads. and for um, for the audience, some many will, will know this, but, some may not. That we today currently choose to limit ourselves and the Russians likewise to about 1,500 uh, deployed warheads. So that's um, that's what we're talking about. And I think uh, I think it is clear that the Chinese do intend to establish some form of parity with the United States and Russia, uh, okay. if not quantitative, then qualitative for sure.
1: Okay. Now, can you? Go unpack this a little bit. Why is China so being so adverse to engaging in arms control talks? Uh, what issues are China most concerned about? Is it missile defense? Is it space capabilities? And how could engaging? You touched on this briefly, but mm-hmm. how could engaging in nuclear talks, or even concluding a nuclear arms agreement, benefit China. So I can I break that down. I realize that that's a that's a quite a number of questions there. But so why don't they want to engage in uh, in arms control talks? And maybe what are what are the potential benefits for them doing so? If you were speaking to the Chinese today, why is it important for them to to do so?
0: Well, I I, I think the reason they are refusing to honor their NPT obligations is simple. Uh, they want to finish the buildup before they sit down and negotiate. Uh, And this is the stuff that arms races are made of. Uh, The time for arms control is not after uh, the Chinese have sparked a three-way nuclear buildup by both the United States and Russia and China. And by the way, we can't forget that there are other countries watching the Chinese very closely, uh, chiefly India, for instance. Uh, And so this this could spiral uh, in many, many hazardous directions. Uh, the benefits uh, to the Chinese are 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 numerous. Uh, starting with the fact that the Chinese want to be treated like a great power. Uh, what better way to be seen as a great power than sitting down, behaving responsibly like a great power, and engaging in nuclear arms control talks with us and the and the Russians? Uh, ultimately, they're going to have to do that. It's just a matter of how much international pressure, uh, how much economic and financial pressure, uh, and how much other forms of pressure have to be brought to bear to achieve that outcome. Uh, But we are quite determined and uh, we will take whatever steps we need to do to get them to the negotiating table uh, to avoid this, this destabilizing buildup. Um, Another benefit that they will reap is, is the, uh, the enhanced ability to communicate in times of crisis. Uh, Even with all of the risk reduction measures we have in place uh, with the Russians, there are from time to time uh, moments when, when things get a little uh, uh, sporty, as they might say. Uh, The Norwegian sounding rocket uh, about a decade ago um, is a good example of that. And so you really do need uh, these kinds of capabilities, particularly since China's clearly with its new silo basing uh, of of use or lose kind of missiles, they're going to go to a launch on warning posture and they're going to need these kinds of um, risk reduction uh, capabilities. Uh, We're happy to talk with them about missile defense. We're not going to agree to any limitations on our missile defenses, but we'll certainly talk to them about our capabilities will help them understand that uh, their destabilizing behavior is what's going to prompt us uh, spreading additional missile defensive capabilities uh, in the region, uh, that their buildup of thousands of these INF class missiles uh, is highly destabilizing and that we have no choice but to therefore uh, pro- you know, provide that capability to our friends and our allies as they wish and so on. So there's probably many reasons why they would want to sit down and talk uh, and take some of this offline into diplomatic channels. but. For now, I'm happy to, to, to be about as public as, uh, as we can, can be until they do sit down.
1: Yeah, so is there is there any, any movement? They reacted, I would say, less than enthusiastically when you first proposed it. Has there been any progress on this in, from the Chinese at all? Uh,
0: it's bits and pieces, indications <laughs> here and there, but certainly nothing that uh, is going to prevent us from charging them with violating the NPT if they don't sit down soon. Okay.
1: What, are the, what is the, uh, Mr. Ambassador, what is the Russian reaction to the Chinese military buildup? I don't know if you can say. Uh, I, I'd, be, I'd certainly be interested. I think other people would be interested. I mean, this is a country that borders uh, China. It, it has not, a, not always a pleasant history with China. And, uh, you know, certainly going back many, many years. And of course, they've talked about strategic partnerships and other things, but it's probably more a, a marriage of uh, convenience than it is of, of love. Uh, what do the what do the Russians say? I mean, you think about you know they're they're on the border, uh, large power next to them, uh, economic power, mili- now military power, political power. Uh, have they, if you can say, have they expressed any concerns to you about this?
0: Well, the, the the Russians are in a in a tight spot, and it's one of their own making. Um, they have behaved so egregiously, um, most recently with the Navalny poisoning, with Novichok again, uh, that they have no friends. All they've got is the Chinese, so they're in a bit of a jam, Uh, but I will tell you, it is our strong sense, uh, having had very blunt conversations with the Russians regarding the Chinese buildup, that they are keeping an eye on it, and it does concern them. Um, It certainly doesn't concern them enough that they're willing to uh, break ranks with the Chinese at this stage, but I think uh, they'd be more than happy uh, for us to somehow get the Chinese to the negotiating table. After all. Uh, the Russians are going to, and, and Russians, I think, do recognize that China has significant territorial claims on Russian territory. Uh, China, I think, uh, has never agreed that Vladivostok actually belongs to the Russians. Um, one doesn't have to go back too far in history to recall uh, the, the attacks the Chinese, the massacre that the Chinese conducted uh, when they redrew, redrew the borders over Xingbao Island. Uh, something that actually almost came to, to a, a nuclear outcome uh, at a time when the Soviet Union was far superior in, in its arsenal. Uh, one can only wonder what would happen if, if, if China in the future is armed to the gills like the Russians. So I think it's a, it's a quandary the Russians are in. Uh, but uh, ultimately, you know, they've made clear they're not going to oppose China being at the negotiating table. They're simply just not going to help us get them there.
1: Okay. I, I would like to know if, if there, I want to go to the, the audience here, but if you can, at some point, let us know if there's others who are supportive of your efforts uh, regarding bringing China to the table. But let me go to one of the audience questions. Let me,
0: let me just tell you, I mean, that the, the list is, is long and growing. Okay, uh, We've asked uh, foreign ministers across the globe uh, to come out uh, uh, on the Chinese to, to call on them to negotiate in good faith. Uh, we've had uh, nearly all of the allies, uh, NATO allies at this point a large number of neutral uh, nations, uh, including Austria, uh, Ukraine, which Ukraine speaks with some moral authority on this topic, as you can imagine, uh, and uh, most recently, Sweden's prime minister uh, at the UN General Assembly. Uh, But we are expecting, like I said, to to hear other uh, allies come out publicly, uh, like uh, New Zealand and Australia. We expect them to to come out publicly. Um, uh, They certainly have uh, very vocal opinions on nuclear weapons, and,
1: and now's the time to be heard. Uh, so I appreciate that question. Good. Well, here's a question from the audience, and it's, it's similar to this. It says, "On your recent trip to Asia, how did regional allies respond to the prospects of U.S. withdrawal from New Start? Are Asian allies more concerned about the buildup of Chinese nuclear or uh, conventional systems?" So this, we can talk a little bit about your. We haven't got a lot of time left, but we can talk a little bit about your trip uh, to uh, Tokyo, Seoul, and uh, I guess Hanoi.
0: Yeah. No. Good. Good question. But let me be very clear. We're not. We're not withdrawing from New Start. Uh, we're gonna that treaty is gonna run the full duration. Uh, the question is whether uh, it's a useful framework for the future. Uh, and standing by itself, we view it as not necessarily all that useful. Uh, but we are willing to extend it provided that we address the other 55% of the Russian arsenal with a freeze, uh, and provided that we uh, come to a framework that could be extended ultimately to include the Chinese. Now, I, I must say, uh, I don't know that there's a great deal of focus in Asia on New START one way or another. Uh, there is definitely uh, a, a great concern about uh, Chinese uh, weapons programs writ large, both conventional uh, and nuclear. And in the case of their ballistic missiles, these are all dual capable systems, so it's both. Uh, and uh, quite, a, quite a bit of interest in what uh, our Asian friends and allies can do to deter uh, Chinese aggression and to bolster uh, their national defenses. And so we had very good meetings in, in both Seoul, uh, Tokyo, and Hanoi, uh, but very different meetings, just given the the nature of the different relationships we have with those two allies and, and, with, and with a close friend. Uh, so again, this is an area that we're gonna continue the discussions. And as we ripen our, our capabilities with missile defenses and with uh, medium range deterrent systems, uh, we're going to be you know, consulting closely with, with these and
1: other nations. Okay. Here's one on New START. Uh, U.S. allies are calling for the U.S. to extend New START with less than four months left until the treaty expires. What message would you like to relay to allies who are worried about the agreement's fate? What prospects are there after Helsinki for e- extension?
0: So, uh, great question. Uh, and I, I would appreciate the audience relaying this message in, in, in full volume. Uh, now's the time to ring up the Russians and tell them, take the deal. Uh, for those nations that are so focused and enamored of New START, uh, we've put an extension on the table provided that the the Russians agree to an overall uh, freeze on, on the total strategic stockpile, the total weapons stockpile. So now's the time for the Russians to step up and take the deal. We think that the way has been cleared uh, uh, for that. Uh, and I'm hopeful that in the coming days, um,
1: uh, we'll see some, some, some clear indications of that. Okay. Now we're getting down to the, the end here, Mr. Ambassador. Thank you so much for, for these comments. The time goes by way too quickly for hours, but you have important work that you need to do. Um, where do I mean, can we get past the great wall of secrecy? Uh, you know, where do we go from here? I mean, I'll let this as we have a few minutes left. I'll leave this as your final comments, uh, to the, to the audience is it possible what do we need to do to get past this great wall of secrecy is china willing where do we where do we go from here in, in dealing with uh where do we go from here in, in dealing with uh, china and this, this challenge
0: well it's not just our, our friends and our allies i mean what china is what china portends with its nuclear crash program is should be a concern to the entire world uh the entire world are are, are generally speaking parties to the npt and so the non-nuclear weapon states have every right to insist under Article 6 that China sit down and negotiate in good faith. Uh, and I think it's high time for, for a lot of these nations to, to step up and be heard. Now's the right time. Uh, likewise, Peter, I think it's important for uh, the arms control uh, establishment to also step up. Uh, and now's the time for the, all the myriad of arms control experts that we have out there to register their voice with the Russians, take the deal and to turn, as, uh, as Daryl Kimmel just did recently, uh, to turn and call on the Chinese to sit down and negotiate and come up with something constructive to say. So I think um, you know, diplomacy has not yet run its course, uh, but we are going to need to negotiate from a position of strength. And that's why uh, the modernization of our own deterrent, uh, maintaining our extended deterrence guarantees to our allies, uh, and uh, uh, offering additional defensive capabilities and deterrent capabilities to our friends and our allies is going to be uh, a major part of the equation going forward.
1: Okay. Any last thoughts on New Start before we uh, before we wrap up today's program? Since you addressed uh, since you addressed China,
0: I, I think uh, I think I've covered uh, the key. Um, you know, again, Stanley we could have a deal tomorrow or we can have a deal whenever. Uh, we're, you know, we're we're ambivalent. Uh, the ball is in Russia's court. Uh, but I, I do think uh, this would be
1: in Russia's interest ultimately, so hopefully they'll, uh, they'll take the deal that we've offered. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you, Ambassador Billingsley, for that rich and, and thoughtful discussion. Uh, we wish you well in your important work, and I want to thank the audience for joining us today at the Heritage Foundation.
0: Thanks, Peter. Thanks so much, and thanks to thank the you. audience.